0: All right, so another one of these episodes this week is with Maryam Durgani, and it really gets into some really interesting territory, talking about anti-Muslim racism, feminist anthropology, and really the future, which we don't know anything about. Remember, I'm recording this on March 24th. I'm posting it on April 7th, and the world's going to be completely different by the time I do, and it'll be completely different two weeks from now. So hope you enjoy, and hope it still feels somewhat relevant. So welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. I am JPV Gerald. Today I have Dr. Miriam Durrani, who is here to talk to us about well, all of this stuff and her perspective on it. Uh, but before we get into all of these things, I uh, just wanted to welcome her to the show. I say that like there's five thousand people who are going to pay attention, but anyway, uh, and. Welcome. And if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you've done for the people listening.
1: Thank you so much um, for inviting me to be a part of your show. Um, So I am uh, currently teaching anthropology at Hamilton College, which is a small liberal arts college in central New York state. Um, My research is primarily um, focusing on Muslim, the Muslim youth subject. Um, and thinking about how this particular uh, subject position is framed within higher education, both in the United States and in Pakistan. And in both contexts, I'm also looking at how U.S. empire operates uh, within higher education. And so there's a number of different questions that I get into um, in my research, which focus on uh, migration questions, how we think about um, individual mobility within this particular global neoliberal economy that a lot of young people are aspiring for um, and how gender and race complicate the way that this is accessed for students, especially um, looking at Pakistani origin Muslim college students. Um, In addition to that, my research also, I write about anti-Muslim racism and uh, from a linguistic anthropology perspective um which is a little bit different than the way that um others have written about anti-muslim racism um so i focus on how it is communicated um both at the interpersonal level but also structurally through official policies and um, programming so that's a little bit of what i do
0: i mean that's there's a lot in there that if I don't focus, because this is what always happens, I start to drift off into what I find very interesting and what people have done. Right. Um, and I'm only going to ask you one follow-up thing within there. Or otherwise, I will be doing this forever. Um, but one of the things you mentioned right at the end was, um, you said, like a different way that people tend to talk about anti-Muslim racism. Um, and maybe, and I and I, in one of your articles in Anthropology News, I was reading how... Uh, you had spoken to, or maybe interviewed, I forget how it was, how it was framed, uh, a colleague or a faculty member who said that they were aware of, you know, the writ large Islamophobia, but they hadn't been as familiar with the more subtle forms. So, What are some of the ways, because I think people know about the overarching policies that are discriminatory, but what are some of the more subtle ways from your perspective and some of the work that you've done that policies discriminate against Muslims? Well, I guess we're in the United States, but, you know, generally.
1: I mean, I think that um, in a lot of different places, the way that insider outsider status is uh, maintained is... um, both through official policies such as, for example, the Muslim travel ban that um, you know uh, Trump uh, began his presidency with. Um, but then you also have the ways that Muslims are expected to position themselves as loyal Americans. Um, and that kind of explicit framing is um, one of the things that I write about, uh, for example, at the Democratic National Convention in 2016 when um, a gold star family was brought to the stage to speak as muslim americans whose son had uh, died in the iraq war and so the way that um muslims are brought in even on on the democrat side often is to uh, present themselves as loyal subjects of the u.s empire rather than um critique is taken seriously. And so there's a way that, for example, we, we see um, the way that <clears throat> Congresswoman Elhan Omar and Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib are constantly fielding these kinds of attacks of their, um, you know, that they're not somehow uh, thinking of America's best interests. Um, and that's often the way that they're uh, attacked. And so I think, I think that it has become extremely explicit in the last few years, Um, and so it's harder, I think, to maybe uh, say that it's not happening since it's so foundational, it seems, to the current um, regime, but um, there's ways that uh, slight kind of um, remarks that are made when, for example, um, someone is critical of something as that doesn't sound very American, and the way that that, uh, there's a a news clip of uh, Hoda Kotebi, who is a uh, Chicago-based activist. And when she was being interviewed on a morning news show, I think um, her work is actually looking at um, uh, clothing and um, uh, refugee uh, women empowerment in Chicago. And uh, she was asked about Iran's nuclear policy um, in an interview where she was being interviewed about her fashion blog. And her uh, philanthropic work, and um, when she responded with a very clear critique, um, the newscaster said that you don't sound American. And so these are the ways that, again, like any any time that you start to assert a, a critical kind of perspective, your um, loyalty is called into question. And that really rings true of like uh, Newt Gingrich's uh, call for a loyalty test in twenty sixteen for Muslims. Um, and so. you you see that kind of trope circulated in different ways by different actors. Um, yeah,
0: I don't want to go too too far back, but from what you've studied and, and researched, and was this? Re- I mean, I'm sure it's been there since time immemorial. But was this really? do you find like completely kicked into high gear after 9/11, or was was there? I mean, obviously there, w- it didn't come from nowhere, but uh, like, cause I remember the first time I, because it wasn't my personal experience that I had thought much about it was after 9-11 being here in New York and hearing people say that, I'm like, what are you, what, 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 what? You know, like I, the, the date on 9-12, I was listening to the radio and uh, cause you know, I don't know what else to do. i have to go to school that day. And uh, they, it was just like a, like a pop radio station. And they were playing songs and then they had people calling in talking about what had happened. Fair enough. And some guy called in to say that he was planning to go find all of the Muslims on his block and beat them up. And, and like the radio host was like, like don't do that sir but like it, the fact that someone was just like saying that i was just like i didn't even i was just, like i can't even conceive it obviously now i can conceive of all of these things but you know yeah.
1: no i mean i think that um what what anti-muslim racism has looked like in the past has not been i mean these racism or these forms of racism do not exist you know independent of other other processes that are happening right so um the uh way that anti muslim racism manifested for example during um the civil rights period and prior to that uh included uh, and like um there was no real kind of idea of a muslim that wasn't uh african American or black, and so those kinds of um those kinds of racisms were very much um Drawing on each other, where where being Muslim was uh, a um, was a was a way for um, for people to assert an identity outside of Christian America, and um, that was very powerful. And so, even at that time, uh, being Muslim was seen as somehow um, a threat to an idea of like a white christian america and so that in that context you see how blackness and islam are seen as both um uh presenting some kind of uh, you know problem in in this uh racist context um and so you know you see with the iranian revolution the way that um anti-iranian kind of racisms are kind of their own form of uh racism that clearly draws on an idea of Uh, Iran being a Muslim majority, um, you know, country, but also the way that the U.S. government has specifically, you know, constructed Iran as this boogeyman um, for the last, I don't know how many years it's been now, 40 years or so. Yeah, like 42,
0: 43, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think that at different moments, uh, what it means to be anti-Muslim from a U.S. imperial perspective has varied. And so, that's part of what um, me and other scholars are, are, you know, doing in our work is try to explain the kind of um, the logics that undergird this racism. Because I think, uh, I think often of like Toni Morrison's, um, you know, statement uh, when I'm writing about anti-Muslim racism, which is the way that you have to constantly prove that it's, it's a real thing that it is there. And that is something that people are dealing with um, and it shapes people's lives. But I think, uh, the way the work, my work is trying to, you know, um, maybe, um, kind of respond to that, uh, you know, um, statement is to show why it is this way and what are the, um, reasons Then, in economies, political economy, or, um, you know, other kinds of, uh, national security interests or, you know, policies that, that support anti-Muslim racism. So you see it as a, as a, as a part of a much larger uh, picture, as opposed to kind of like separating it out. And I think the other thing that's really important is to see how this is a global, um, global process, especially with uh, what's happening in China and what's happening in India and elsewhere, the way that Muslim minority group or populations are then used as scapegoats by the government um, when other things are not, when they're trying to control the population for other reasons.
0: There's, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, I, I I think it's uh, we Americans um, are so hopelessly narrow-minded in the way that we look at things that we can't even put together the fact that this is happening in a lot of places. Like, we might, I don't, I'm not, I don't know who we is in this case. I just mean people in this country may possibly be able to understand that you know anti-muslim racism in this country you know they could see it in some ways if they choose to pay attention right um and or they might be able to pay attention to um what's happening in china because you know there was a new yorker story about it so that's how they probably heard about it right Mm -hmm. um and I, i mean i read the article too um but uh and they might be or they'll hear about what's happening in india like for some reason it doesn't connect that these three things are are, are part of the same story, you know, with, with different mm-hmm. angles. And I think that that's a, that whole having to prove that it even exists is like so much, it's just so exhausting to have to do that. You know, it's yeah. like, it's not a conversation that I want to keep having. I My work isn't uh, directly tied to anti-Muslim racism, but I know that when I write about racism or anti-Black racism, I always, you know, in my, in, my, in my, 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 cause I'm in school I have to start by like, here is proof that racism exists. Cause if I don't say that people will be like, I don't know. And then I, oh, fine. um, <laughs> so like, That's so it, it's so funny because
1: like, so I, I'm revising a chapter right now for, um, a handbook on language and race. And I wrote a chapter on the gendered Muslim subject and I wrote the chapter really like now I want to say three years ago when I first wrote the first draft and so it's been three years for me myself in terms of my growing my you know writing my own kind of book proposal and chapters now and my understanding of these issues has changed and you know uh I hope gotten a little bit more sophisticated (laughs) than it was and so I see exactly what you're saying where I was constantly trying to say that this is real and kind of like emphasizing some of the most um like stark and and disturbing um, kind of examples of it. And I think that when I went back in my revision, I actually subdued it to kind of highlight again, the, um, the logics behind it. So that way it's not kind of just like um, flashing lights on the pain, but actually on like what creates this, these conditions. Um, and so I think that is like this, it's hard because we ha- are trained often to just explain to people that this is a real thing. But I think that I'm so indebted to scholars who have been doing such rich work over the last like 10, 15 years that have made it possible for me to not constantly have to hedge that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's racism. It's not prejudice. It's not bigotry. Like it's not this like kind of reduction of this into some type of interpersonal um disagreement rather than a structural kind of policy that is systematic and discriminates based on particular logics that fulfill certain purposes so
0: one of the, one of the things i do when i get frustrated with these things because i know depending on the audience or what a uh, you know publication or something i'm trying to write for that like i have to play a little game to some extent. And I'm still like, I'm like, I'm a second year student. So I have to do some things that I hope that I don't have to do in a couple of years. But what I try to do is throw a very, very small amount of shade um, that they don't seem to catch on to. Like I was in uh, a journal, a New York TESOL journal because i mean I live in New York and that was the first place I got published, you know, and they, uh, well, maybe, well, maybe they won't, won't listen to this, but we'll see. Um, they, they put my article, which was about defensiveness and racism and so forth, um, in the field. And they, and I've submitted the article for one of the regular sections. And then they said, well, how about the alternative perspectives section?
1: And mm. I didn't
0: have any publications yet. So was I going to be like, no, I don't want anything. So I was like, fine. So I made it shorter and I put it in there. Uh, but in the article I did write the phrase and I now I'm going to misquote myself but whatever something like uh are you looking at things from an alternative perspective like (laughs) you know like actually quoting Mm -hmm. the thing as if to say like um you know I'm well aware of the fact that you put me over here in this corner um, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to point it out and we'll see if anybody catches on and I don't think that they did so that's fine um Mm -hmm. and like so and like I I wrote in the AAAL grad student journal and or newsletter and um you know it was like the diversity issue and and in the article I said something like the fact that we have to call things diversity issues it's ridiculous or something like that so you know um I think some of the people who are doing these things are slightly aware of how silly they sound but at least uh we still have to it's just it's just so much like extra emotional work for, for mm-hmm. no reason. Like, yeah, I can go find three articles that prove the point, right? So it's not that much time. It's just, it's like draining to have to do, to, to have to prove your humanity, basically. Um, mm-hmm. one of the things that you mentioned, uh, in, in one of your articles that you wrote, um, in the anthropology news article was about, um, uh, the Zora Neale Hurston book, um, Barracoon. Is it pronounced Barracoon? I, I would assume that it is, but I, I don't think know.
1: so yeah that's how i've been saying
0: it yeah i mean b- based on how it's written but i don't know i don't know one of the things that I, I i that i um experienced in high school without realizing it is that i read i read there as Were watching god in high school and that was not something that was on most of the curriculums at the time um like usually they would throw us a morrison right you know you could you could get a morrison but you didn't get as much zora uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't realize that this was unusual. I went to a very, very white school, um, but I had this one teacher who was trying things a little bit differently, and I just didn't realize how different it was until I talked to more people about it, and they're like, oh, no, I didn't read anything like this, and I didn't know at all until I was out of college, a couple of years out, that Zora Neale Herson was an actual, actually an anthropologist, I just mm-hmm. knew that she was she was a, a writer and, you know, she, was, she had these books and they were good and that's fine. But I didn't even think to say, oh, she's actually like doing research and studying things. So I think sometimes that that to me, that sort of, because, you know, it sort of comes up and you write about how people say, what can anthropologists do, but it's what are they already doing? Um, and that's one of the things like anthropologists are really doing a lot of work, but is it getting to who needs to get it, you know? So I think that uh, one of the ways in which the work is diminished is by not even telling people that Zora Neale Hurston is an anthropologist, you know, she's mm-hmm. just a writer. Now there's no wrong with being a writer. It's just that, that that's all she's seen as and painted as mm-hmm. is just limited to her art, artistic contributions, which are vast, but that's not all that she was, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think from, again, like teaching linguistic anthropology or teaching anthropology of race and racism, that particular book, when I read it, I was just like, I'm going to teach methods from now on with this book, because there's, there's so much, um, like skill that I think gets, uh, erased when we don't recognize, um, what it's happening in that text, for example. I mean, even in terms of like, you know, in, in anthropology, we have like the writing culture moment, right? Um, which uh, is said to have happened in like the 80s and 90s. And then you have, even at that time when the those um, scholars were writing, there were uh, feminist anthropologists uh, from an earlier moment who said, we've been writing about some of these things for a while, by the way, <laughs> um, if you haven't noticed. And I think going back even further to Hurston's work where she... He actually refused to publish um, Barracoon at that time because she refused to change the dialect that she had written Kusula's, um, you know, narrative in. And that kind of like ethical um, integrity is something that I think we lose when we are driven towards particular ideas of like knowledge production that do not, uh, for example, begin with the humanity of our um you know participants uh teachers um interlocutors uh, whatever the term is like for the people who help us do the research that we do and i think again like when i when i um read uh you know her work and other people's work and how they were writing about these issues 100 years ago 150 years ago um it is striking because there's always this like you know uh, a sad excuse that people use that like oh that was just the that was just the times that's just how people used to do things back then and it's like actually even researchers were thinking about ethics uh at the very kind of beginning of formal anthropology in the United States right um it it's uh it's sad when that happens but i also think like that's the work that we get to do now um and that's the the ways that we can kind of change some of these conversations um so i was i was, that was really fun to write and the other really amazing thing about that piece was that i got a um i got an email from faye harrison after that was published where she was like i really appreciated what you wrote and it really um i didn't and i also appreciate that you cited my work and i was just kind of like first of all like, of course, uh, I would not be here if it was not for you, you know, and um, Just that kind of like um, Humility I think that is taught uh, within certain traditions of anthropology often gets um, Just it, it's ignored and I think it's ignored very strategically and politically but um, those of us who know about it have to do the work of educating others
0: I I, I think that that's um, really important to say because I have found when I've really, since I've really narrowed, not narrowed, sophisticated, I don't know, whatever it is, I got more focused on what I wanted to focus on um, about a year ago. I found that the conversations and the dialogues I've had have really been very respectful among the people that I've, you know, tried to work tried to learn from I haven't really experienced a lot of the dismissiveness that I was a little bit worried about coming across I'm not saying it doesn't exist I just mean in approaching people really you know with with humility and with with honesty and authenticity you know uh things go a long way and I think a lot of that um that nastiness it's it's very present It's not, you know, it's not fictitious. It's, um, I think a lot of it is people who are genuinely afraid to lose uh, their weakening hold on the conversation. Um, Because I, you know, I think people who are not doing anything new are well aware they're not doing anything new. They may not see it that way. They probably would phrase it differently, but I think that they are saying we shouldn't change the canon because I can't do that <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know like I, I'm not that's a, that's a read <laughs> you, you know but I'm, I'm saying that I really think that that's a lot of it like I, I don't know so, that.
1: yeah it's funny because like I went to a, a conference like two weeks ago and I remember somebody somebody was using um, a Potterized work from like I don't know when he published on Mediascapes um, but it, it's it's dated uh even you know from from that perspective and I remember she said like none of us were reading this in grad school and I was like I bet you there were people reading it in grad school and those folks have moved on like far beyond where you're kind of like finally coming into this material um so I think that it's true that like uh they there were moments that were missed and so there's been directions that some of the scholarship has gone and sometimes it does feel like it's a like there's there's uh, like the way we talk about alternative modernities, there's like alternative streams of scholarship and we're kind of sometimes in, like those of us who are in kind of more niche fields and certainly have to kind of like, um, not niche actually, that's even the wrong word, more maybe like um, just not mainstream at the moment, um, not seen in the same way um, by like larger kind of like programs. But I think we're all, uh, we're all very much in conversation about some of these things. And I find that to be very empowering, especially right now dealing with this pandemic and um, trying to make sense of it. Like, I'm just grateful that I can see what they're tweeting and what people are writing and reading right now. And they're sharing their thoughts because there is this completely irrational, it seems to me, maybe there's a rationality to it, but it seems so kind of unbelievable that people are having conversations about should the economy be saved or should we save our uh our you know vulnerable population you know like I mean that's where we're at right now today Tuesday uh March uh 24th of 2020 and I don't know where this is going to go next
0: but what I don't understand about it because like That's craven and terrible. But what I don't understand is why they think it won't hurt them. Like they, they, they're not. I understand. Like, like. So my understanding of it uh, is that at some point, after people have been inside for a while, like, um, which is not actually happening in every state yet. Uh, but like in areas where people have been inside for a while, the rate of infections starts to decrease after a while, if only because people have been inside for a while. And then the people who are really vulnerable are going to be the people who have been forced to be on the front lines, who can't take days off. And they're going to, you know, people who are really economically vulnerable on top of being physically vulnerable. But before that, which is a very big problem, but even before that happens, Literally anybody can get it. <laughs> well, like, like these these people on TV who are talking about their stocks and all of that, like you are in the vulnerable group. Like these men, these men are not young. Like there's no reason to think like Rand Paul has it. Like there's no reason to think that they can't get it. Like that how many of them were having lunch with Rand Paul when he was ignoring all instructions over the weekend or whatever was going on. So like I wonder if they will force this crazy crazy is a bad word to use these is these ridiculous ideas through and try to force all of the states to reopen which i don't know that they can actually do like the states have to agree to it but uh before some of them actually get really sick is what i'm saying because it's going to happen just because just like just math like some of them are going to get very sick some of the ceos are going to get very sick they are not young men right uh and so i i'm just wondering why they think that they're invincible i mean i know the reason but
1: <laughs> I, mean, I, think that, I think i think they're just trying to prolong it as much as possible it really makes me think of the way for example even like higher education officials were waiting until the last possible moment to actually like make a decision um they they could have done it three or four days earlier And given students the opportunity, for example, to say goodbye. You know, I mean, that's right. That's the part I just am every single time that there's a humane option on the table. Everyone's like, nope, that's not, that's not, that's, we have to find a compromise between the humane and the dehumanization kind of like option here, which is that like you, like people don't actually matter except for liability. Um, You know, questions about uh, people's kind of like, the survival of the of the most number of people, for example, is not as important as just the fact that like the economy has slowed over the last week or two right um i, I think that they're just i, I just, i'm 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 constantly shocked, but I also think there's a part of it where going back to the earlier point around kind of like American exceptionalism, it's like and this kind of idea of like not really thinking from an internationalist point of view that these are conditions that are experienced by a lot of different people. And even within the United States, right? Like, I mean, Flint has been dealing with a crisis that could have been resolved quite easily for years. And there has been this complete you know, uh, rejection of that need. Uh, Puerto Rico and how that was mishandled last year that led to so much more devastation than was uh, necessary like every single moment that this government has had the opportunity or any you know kind of like U.S. government one could say like has had the opportunity to step in and kind of like do the more humane thing it's it's uh it's not what the logic of this system supports and so we're we're I mean at this point we're seeing really like the the uh, the limits you know um because of this pandemic because it is this pandemic isn't going to wait for any for any small group of people to be affected as you said it's going to affect all of us in some capacity and those of us who are already feeling it in terms of family members who have lost their jobs or um, people who are sick right now and are trying are monitoring their situation or friends of friends who are hospitalized I mean I feel like it's starting to come closer to each individual and so another week, another two weeks, everything can change again, you know, like, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I am trying to, like, kind of observe without getting completely in, in enveloped into it, (laughs) because it's almost like, as long as one can look at it, versus, you know, once you're in, once something happens to you as as an individual or to your family, like, there is no outside of it, it's just, it's, you know, it feels strange right now to be sharing things of, like, what we're cooking on, for example, on social media or what have you. Because it's just kind of like this very strange drifting into <laughs> into something really bad and not even being able to know what it is that you're drifting into.
0: Yeah. With the economy, like... So, I have, I wonder, because... First of all, what's a good economy, right? Like, like mm-hmm. it, hasn't, it hasn't really been good. Like, what does that even mean? For, for like, a lot of people, it's not, it hasn't been yeah. good for a while. All they really mean is the Dow goes up. That's literally all they mean. And the very artificial unemployment rate goes down. Okay, so... What would it mean, though, if an extra million people die? Like, I'm just wondering, like, that can't be good for the economy. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, like if the idea the fictitious idea of the way the economy is constructed is that people can spend money, well, they can't spend money if they're not alive. So like, I don't understand why they think that if they were to try to do this thing, like, okay, people would like a certain subset of people would feel like, yeah, they let me out of my house. I'm going to go to the bar. But like, first of all, not all of the bars are going to be open. (laughs) like maybe a few will try to be like good yeah we'll try to whatever but like no one's like not every people are gonna go uh and then my dog is upset um and then like when people when when more people get sick than would have gotten sick anyway then like it's just gonna crater again and worse and not recover like I don't Like, it doesn't even make any, like, it doesn't even make sense. The only thing that I'm thinking is that the performance of the DAO, which is not actually based on things, it's based on what a few people think that people will do. If it were the case that the DAO actually went up, regardless of how many people were actually sick, because it's not based on that, it's based on, Will the people spend the money? And will, you know, will the, you know the you know the labor of individuals and all that? Neptune, stop. Um, like it might actually be the case that the Tao did not crater, even if all of the people died. And that would probably show how artificial it is the way we've all been saying it has been for all this time. Unfortunately, like I'm not. Sure. I don't really need to see that point proven because I already know. And what would mm-hmm. it have? What would have had to have happened for that to be the case? Like I, I'm not that like self righteous. They're like, aha, my point has been proven. It's like all oh, these people died to prove your point, Justin. Um, so like I don't think that. So that's it. But the real thing is that there's all these states where they're acting like it's not a problem. They're not really fully shut down yet because they don't, they think, wow, New York has the most, like, New York is doing a lot of testing, there are a lot of people who have it, but it doesn't mean you don't have it in the other states, (laughs) it's
1: like, I mean, and I think that's also, like, the thing about this idea of state, I mean, what I'm saying is, like, it goes back to these very, like, basic ideas that, like, people don't seem to understand, that, like, the boundary of a state does not preclude the possibility of porous borders and the fact that like people have been traveling across these states just because you haven't done this the, exactly what you're saying the, t- the testing hasn't happened in Pennsylvania or in New Jersey I mean th- those three states are essentially like one large like mass of like you know where people are constantly going between um I I, I don't really yeah I, I I think that the idea of states the idea of borders the idea of separation between like China is a different place. What happens in China has nothing to do with us. We'll never be affected. It's like proving itself. Every single stupid idea that people have is being proven as false. Like, look at this. The invisible hand is also not really (laughs) a thing, but there is, there are still those people who are making decisions today based on that. Like a week and a half ago, I think, my brother sent me um, a summary of a call that, some friend of his who's like an investor in Goldman Sachs had with, with the, his, with the company. And they were basically just saying that like, there is your money is safe, right? Like that's what they're constantly telling people is that your money is safe. Your money is safe because once things like that start to change, then they're going to expect the government to bail them out even more. And so I really just, uh, I guess I think it's just like managing the day to day, Trying to figure out what I'm doing for this 24-hour period, and then tomorrow is going to be a new 24-hour period, and each day is like, a, it brings more kind of worries, as you're saying, of like as this as this pandemic spreads. Um, we're still early. I think they they if if we measure up against the Italian kind of curve, we have another two or three weeks before things start to look um, very much like what it looks like over there, and maybe worse.
0: Yeah, I I we don't, we don't really know, right? Cuz the 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 we have to know are we getting the equivalent rate of testing to mm-hmm. prove how many people we have a lot more people but doesn't mean we're testing more. Our death rate right. is a lot lower uh because Italy's death rate started high and stayed high. Ours is much lower but will it spike to increase because of the lack of equipment and so forth?
1: Because, and also just the lack of of people making changes. I mean, like you said, there's still people right now who are not abiding by any of the guidelines because it's not mandatory.
0: Yeah, the, um, of course, I mean, even in Italy, there's all those mayors who had to yell at them. Like, it's mandatory, but they still had to yell at them. So, so, like, the fact that that it's, you know. um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that's been really um, interesting to me about this is um, how, how inaccurate uh, the messaging is, you know, like, especially with regards to this idea of um, it's like the flu, it's flu-like symptoms, people kind of like have this perspective of it, and it makes me think of um, Worf's work around the way that empty uh barrels were referred to even though they had uh gas in them and the way that like the talk around these kind of like safety um topics can be is something that you have to be very careful about because you know what was happening was that people would smoke around those barrels that they were referred to as empty but actually like there would be an explosion and so like i've been thinking about how to think of 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 this messaging around covid as having these very like problematic, like, phrasings that, that completely, you know, allow people to go with what they want to be true, rather than what actually is happening, and so, um, yeah, I don't know what to say, but it's it's been very troubling, the fact that, like, I talked to a friend, and he said, you know, to be honest, they kept calling it, they kept saying it was, like, the flu, and so his, him and his family, and he was like, we really shouldn't have done this, but, like, up until last weekend, they were still going around public places with three young children and and you know he was admitting that it was wrong but at the time when he was doing it which was only like three or four days previous he's like I had no way of an, I didn't understand. I didn't you know what I mean? So it's like that's that's a really um that's so dangerous for people to like realize three weeks later that oh actually I totally didn't understand this but it's not entirely because of myself, it's because of the messaging that like keeps being circulated
0: the thing about it is that i can't even with the people who are still thinking it's like the flu but like i i i um it, it it makes so little sense because when people say it's like the flu the flu kills this many people every year i'm just like wait a second first of all that's a problem <laughs> Like 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 that's that's not like Okay, <laughs> that's not just. It's like imagine no one had ever had the flu before. That's more what it like. If you, if you were to mention the flu, you you if you you're gonna have to say it's the flu, except no one's ever had it before ever. And then like imagine the first time you ever had any kind of respiratory thing you probably felt really really bad and then you also mm-hmm. imagine you also have some sort of other issue and therefore you can't remember. like it like like yeah There, there's ways to use the flu as a comparison point but that it's just like the flu don't worry about it the flu kills 80 you know 800,000 people a year or whatever the number is I don't know what the number is like
1: that's a problem. I think all, using like using any reference point that has come in the past for what's happening right now is part of the problem. There's like a completely new thing that's happening and everyone is, I understand new is so scary, but at the, at the moment it's almost like it's already happening, right? Like coping with some kind of like older or earlier history in some sense is going to not fully prepare us for this, for this reality that we're in right now, um, which is, I mean, the fact that everything is, for example, now online, all those questions that we had about digital surveillance, like, I feel like should now become even more, you know, important in some ways. Like, we're not necessarily having those conversations, especially, like, um, with, uh, I think, um, Turning Point USA, I think, put out something, right? Where they said that, like, students should be- um, Indoctrination, yes yeah, the liberal bias now and, and you can, like, do it so much more easily now, and um, I don't think that, again, we're seeing any response to that, which is um, very troubling, but also not unexpected. Um, so it's, re- I mean, having, I think, more conversations um with other people who are thinking about this right now is, uh, is what's helping, because <laughs> otherwise, again, it's just like, you yeah. know.
0: You know, and it's, it's 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 a bad sign there's a lot of bad signs but it's a particularly bad sign that like no, no clearly no one has communicated to the people in charge that they're going to be able to come up with a, an effective treatment soon right they're trying things and of course he's saying random stuff that's getting people killed by overdosing on it um Like, you you see that story in, like, Arizona or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's that. I mean, of course I would want that to be, to work if it did. Uh, I mean, you know, like, but if if they don't think the doctors are working on this already, (laughs) like, they've been working on it. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I mean these are these are people who are committed to saving lives i don't i mean and it's really troubling how how thorough this kind of disbelief in like science and evidence based uh you know uh reasoning like it's it's really this free for all like i mean yeah he can say something i mean and and that particular drug is a drug that i actually take um for my rheumatoid arthritis And that drug is now completely sold out like in, in Syracuse. If if I need to get a prescription for it, I think I have to like call around to all the drugstores and there's one that might have some, and then you have to call your insurance because obviously none of this stuff is simple. And so, you know, it's, it's, I don't think that for a lot of people who actually need that medication, like it's going to be available because it's probably already being bought by other like pharmaceutical companies that can profit from this particular moment right like I mean that's that's also obviously happening and has been happening for a few weeks now um if not longer I mean with those senators who sold their stocks before they chose to tell anybody that there might be something to be con- you know what I mean so it's just it's, it's like we're living in this very wild kind of like uh, like uh people are so blatant uh and 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 for some reason there are still those of us who are sometimes surprised by it, and I feel like that's what that the in some sense like people are banking on right is the idea that like no one will expect it no one will expect this other horrible thing but for those of us who st- you know read history this is there's there's some real uh patterns here that are emerging and it's not a bad idea to talk about it you know it's it might actually be a good thing to talk about it rather than I think I don't think that, for example, Trump was trying to help anyone, right? He, nothing he ever says is to help anyone, and so I, I wish we could just stop with the with the with the even possibility of that being a thing. It's it's not happening.
0: He doesn't have he doesn't he's not really able to think two steps beyond where he is, maybe maybe one step. So it's it's really just like. Um, You're
1: so, generous. You're so yeah.
0: generous, yeah no, I mean, like I think he says a thing, and then he wants one more thing to happen because of the thing he says. I think that's as far as he can get if he's really in so his at this fix. point,
1: it's like you know it's not just about him, I mean, he's just one character in this story, like there are so many of these characters who are all kind of just watching this situation unfold, you know, um, and like I said, I think you know when when twenty sixteen happened. And everyone was kind of in this, the nation was in this kind of mourning period where they realized that, oh, that this is who the, you know, people have elected. Um, But it was like when the Republican party approved him as a candidate, that was already like a big sign that like things had shifted, right? Like that was a huge sign. I don't know how that, first of all, you know, but every single time there was this kind of idea that things are bad and they're going to get worse. But it was somehow paced so people didn't over kind of like react, right? Like after that initial shock of like, yes, now he is the actual president of this country. Um, people kind of seemed to think that things were going were gonna to get better, right? With the 2018 election and now with with this particular year. But this pandemic, I think, just puts everything in a completely different formation. And I don't know, again, like if we're, like how we can even see it. Until more time goes by. Um, I just, I can't imagine like what scholarly conversations are going to be like over the next year, um, unless we don't talk about this at all. Right. And it goes back to this earlier point of like, there are people who are helping us understand this moment, but I don't know if they're the ones who are going to be um, recognized and, and put, um, you know, invited for, for kind of those big events versus those who are kind of allowing people to pretend that it's not that serious yet.
0: I think that I mean this is gonna be an entire genre of research, you know, oh, yeah. you know, the same way that World War II is. But like um I'm not trying to make the metaphor of war. I just mean in terms of it being a, a, like a, a an event that affects the entire world at the same time.
1: Um mm-hmm. and Speaking of globalization, yeah. how do you teach globalization now? <sighs>
0: I don't even know what this is going to be. I've said this like a bunch of times, but like they tend to say that there are large events that sort of separate generations and like, you know, based on whether or not people remember them. And like they say that millennials all remember 9-11 and I certainly do, but uh, I was in high school and that like generation Z doesn't really remember it because they were like three, right. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh and so it's going to be this, right? <laughs> like, you know, this is going to be the, like, do you remember that time? Uh, and, you know, what all of the things that, like, my son, my son's a month old, so he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, but if a few years from now, I'm teaching him about everything, and it's going to be really interesting to explain to him what happened. Yeah. Uh, And I don't even mean in terms of, like, schooling. I just mean just being his dad, (laughs) so.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's true. I've been thinking that we're all going to come out, inshallah, when this is over, um, as very different people than we are right now. Um, Because, like, I, I, for example, even teaching the material that I'm already teaching for the rest of the semester, I feel like now I can make the, I can explain to students for example, <clears throat> speaking of 9-11, for Muslim uh, young people who have you know, go, been going through schools and college and living in the world over the last like 20 years, that moment completely reshaped what it meant to be Muslim in the public sphere, right? Individually, one can have various moments of feeling uh, this particular way about their religion or what have you, right? But when it comes to how one is racialized and how that category gets assumed and used by other people. That was a shift. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the work that comes out now, uh, when I when I meet other kind of scholars who are in my age range and are writing about um, some aspect of this issue of the war, of empire, et cetera, we all kind of look at each other like, right, like that's what happened to us. Like 20 years ago, we were in this moment of, of development And this event had to shift the way that we saw our own stories and and how we chose to tell those stories. And so that was for, again, like particular groups. And there's been, I mean, the, the story can be said for so many different populations, but COVID is one of those things where every single college student in the world has been affected, every single high school student has been affected, right? Like it changes the scale when it comes to a generational uh moment um and even though we've had previous moments we've never had a moment such that every single like right now when i'm texting my family all of us are sitting at home right now that never has happened right like never it's never been the case that like everyone is pretty much doing exactly the same thing um unless they are in a job that requires them to ha- to be you know at the hospital or wherever it may be but like it is uh for those of us in our, you know, 20s and 30s right now, like this is another defining moment. So I mean even though I think 9/11 was a moment, I think this is going to change the kind of middle-aged older people we become, you know, where like how can you see this kind of go down and be as um, be, be in academia for example? Like this generation of scholars who are right now for example in grad school as yourself. This is a very big shift um and how i think people will be thinking about what they're doing in grad school and what they hope to do after grad school and i don't know if you know administrators are able to move with it as quickly because they're not going to be only thinking about that right but i think that is um that is something that needs to ha- start happening in some form for people to kind of like talk to each other about it because i'm sure grad students i mean people are talking to each other but like how do we organize that conversation a little bit so that way the the questions for example that are coming up um for some people like maybe they would be useful for others to also be you know talking in their own institution and asking those questions so how do we how do we kind of create a little bit more of a a collective um response so that way as different groups are affected their support i i I've I've, I've, I've
0: I've almost never known what i was going to do after school um <laughs> so this does not help me make that more clear, but um, I think it's uh, something that every single one of us has to think about, um, and I think that I've all I was already I was always frustrated by what I saw as just weightless scholarship that just wasn't really challenging anything, um, and I not that I am the judge and the jury of everything, but like I, it wasn't interesting to me if it wasn't seeming to challenge something. And there's many angles from which to challenge oppression. So if someone is focusing on a type of, of oppression that I don't know much about, I mean, it may not be the first article that I read, but I like, I, I see the value there, even if it's not my angle. But like, I don't want to read anything now. Well, not now, but like after, you know, next year, whatever. Uh that is not taking into account how unequal people really are in this world you know even if it's not the central subject of the piece if if we are just taking i don't know things like the word gap or just little little things that are just like just boring types of of racism or whatever that are just sort of everyday racism kind of things that we aren't even challenging. Like I don't want us to even use the same foundations when we look at the things that we're looking at in our research. And I think that um, anything that I do or that I work with or that I, I, I try to consume, it's just like, we see now how much of the rules we're not, they're just They were as fictional as we said that they were. You know, all of the structures were put in place by men. I mean, I mean not just men, but people is my point. Uh, mostly men. And they can be removed if it appears that it makes more sense to remove them. Uh, so the question will be, when if we're lucky to get to the other side, uh, how quickly they try to put all of those things back in place and how successful we can be at creating new structures or a lack of structure or whatever, just something new because it will be, even if the same rules were put back in place, it will be impossible to go back. Like we can't go, we won't be able to go back to a world that where this didn't happen. Yeah. Um, there's,
1: there's no possibility of that.
0: And that is both bad in the sense of the loss of life and the trauma and the grief that's going to occur. And also, you know, we'll see if there is a possibility for, you know, because one of the central questions that you asked in, in, in one of the articles was about, you know, how do we get people to consume because you know, there's such a dismissal of expertise and or whatever people want to call it, science. Um, how do we get it so that people who have power are genuinely listening to people who are questioning power? But I guess they wouldn't be the power if they listened to those people, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it?
1: I mean, I think what, what what another another way of thinking about that question is like, how do we define power? What do we what do we consider as authority, and take seriously as authority, right? Like, um, I, th- I don't think we have to go back to the same models, and I and I do think that like you know, this is going to create even more precarity within academia, and so the question then becomes, how do we address that head on? rather than do what has been happening thus far, which is those people who are affected by it are the ones who speak on it, and then the rest are more or less kind of, um, you know, uh, six feet distance, basically, right? Like, um, at uh, at my college, in this area that we live in, there is so much, um, there are so many challenges, there's so many issues that one can think about and deal with. Um, but unfortunately, like there is uh there there isn't as much interest in doing that type of work. Um and so I think one of the things that I've done, for example, over the last two years is um I attended um this workshop called Decolonizing Knowledge Institute. Um and Chandra Mahanti and Lanza McCarty and Beverly Guy and uh, several other, you know, very um uh prolific uh feminist uh theorists and scholars um organized it and what they what they argued was is is, you know in order to change the academy we have to create relationships and um solidarities that give us the strength to both be in the academy you know even as it is uh in some sense a, a very unwelcoming space especially to women of color especially to black women to um uh queer and indigenous women, I mean, how do we um, create communities that actually support one another both inter both in terms of um, as individuals, as human beings but also as scholars that push our ideas because I feel like there was there there have been moments where I've just been wanting for someone to really go at my research and tell me where where my where are my gaps and not in terms of like, the, um, the mainstream kind of like, uh, academic, uh, critique, but, but the critique from other kind of like critical Muslim studies scholars or from other, um, you know, uh, critical feminist scholars who are saying that you're not taking this seriously, you're not doing that. And so I think that, um, I feel like I've rambled a little bit. I don't know. I've gone into like talking about scholarship, when actually what I really also want to talk about is like, how do we how, do we, how are we very real and practical about our organizing in terms of like what people need in three months from now, what people need six months from now, what people need one year from now? And then these other questions obviously are also happening, but I think um, I'm, I'm thinking of people who are finishing their PhDs right now. Um, I'm thinking of like people who are on one year VAPs right now, and given the fact that a lot of colleges and universities are putting all new hiring on hold right now, what does that do for the next year for people um do they have access to example unemployment like is that like something that's available for academics right now um I don't know I don't know the answer to these questions but I would love to be able to share this information with other people if there are answers out there um you know
0: yeah I'm seeing yeah because there's people I know who are finishing dissertation now you know and then like they were it was already impossible and now now it's literally impossible (laughs) to get to get those people
1: who have job offers but because they hadn't signed the contract the job has been canceled right like i mean that's also happening right now and those are not necessarily the stories that people want to necessarily put out there on the chronicle of higher ed today but like that is going to have very long-term consequences for people, especially, you know, if they don't have another job lined up for, you know, some home.
0: And And who's and who's going to bear the brunt of that, right? Because the people who can just go back to the parents' house and, and hang out and they have the money to ride it out, um, you know, they may just wait a year and just go on the market next year, you know? Um, but the people who are in the other situation, you know, That doesn't mean that they can't get any type of position, but they will maybe not end up in the academy altogether. And it was already hard for them in the first place. So then what what happens? We say, oh, we want to diversify the academy. We want to make changes in the academy. We want to make it more accessible to everybody, right? But then these things, now, they didn't expect this to happen, but it's just a large version of what was already there. And they don't... um, you're just gonna end up with the same people doing all the work yeah and then then, I was just saying then you're gonna then you're gonna ask yourself oh how did this happen
1: yeah no I think um but like that's what I'm saying I think that that's where hopefully like if people are asking and talking to each other that's one way of trying to address the issue and now I remember the point that I was going to make before which is that like within uh in the area that I live in I I've Kept this it's helped me like connect with a lot of other people across other colleges and universities like living in Syracuse I don't have any family here. I don't have any kind of like long history in this area I've only been here for two years and as all of this has been going down Um, I really quickly started creating like a mutual aid community sheet. I think the first weekend after uh, We started like self isolating here. Um, trying to have like regular calls with some friends like every day at 4:30. it's like a time that like anybody who has has time that day can like say I want to host a call and other people say they'll, they'll join and so just ways to stay connected right now especially with um with whoever can kind of like relate to your situation and where you're at whether it's geographically or whether it's kind of like in terms of being in grad school and like going through a different moment like I think connect connecting um as we go forward like as you're already doing you know um is is the only thing that I think I I feel like is doing something because other things feel very like what am I doing
0: yeah yeah I I really don't know because I think this is it's both it's like the apex of what we've all been talking about in a lot of ways, and in some ways, it's completely new. Like, it's completely new in the particulars, because the whole, like, everyone is in their house around the world, except for the people who can't be. That is new. Like, that's new. The, the way that they're handling it and the people who are going to suffer the brunt of it, aside from the people who are hit with the first wave who could be anybody, that is not new you know, that is, that, that could be anybody. And, and like, it, it's the same. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's a novel coronavirus, but the, the cruelty is not novel. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was clever. I don't know. Um, I will, I will mention, I went to Hamilton college for three weeks once Um, in 1998. I went to math camp and it was at Hamilton College. And so when I found out that she worked there, I just remember being there when I was 12. And wow, <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, and What do you
1: remember about it?
0: Well, the thing is, I did not like the program, which has nothing to do with Hamilton. They just had a bunch of campuses. Um, I remember people played a lot of Frisbee. Just a lot of Frisbee going on on the, on the field. The field is probably not as big as I remember because I was twelve, um, and there was this place where we had dances. I don't know. We were in the middle school. I don't know. Um, and it was like it was like in an octagonal shape.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, the
1: barn, <laughs> the event barn. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, that so that was what definitely going on in the, in 1998. It was uh was that place. Um, yeah so but anyway thanks a lot for for talking to me I I, I really sort yeah. of enjoyed picking these things apart a little
1: bit I I hope uh, there's some threads in there because uh, I felt like it was but my comments were very diffuse <laughs> yeah well
0: that's just I mean I don't know I think that just sort of aligns with the way that I think anyway so um cool. if people listen to what I say then following diffuse conversation is not going well, to
1: be well congratulations I, I was listening to some of the other podcasts before and. Uh, I think it's great it's a a kind of like thinking aloud kind of exercise which I think is uh really brave and helps people to kind of do more of that I think that it was really cool I I I like learning about the the platform too
0: oh well that's that's good I I'm, I'm glad to hear someone who whose work I admire is finding what I'm doing interesting so,
1: yeah, gave me also ideas for my class because I often have podcasts in my classes, and so I was like, oh, this is another platform that we could think about.
0: Especially during all of this, I think that if I were teaching an uh, undergrad class right now, it would be something that I would do. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not, but I would.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an idea. Yeah. All right, well, uh, thanks awesome. for jumping Thank you on so with much, me. Justin. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>